This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome. This is Colleen O'Grady, the host of the Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. This is a gathering place for moms to be encouraged, nurtured, and inspired. Also, you'll learn the latest in teen research and trends and get practical parenting tips. You really can improve your relationship with your teen and enjoy the teenage years. Welcome back, everyone, to the 162nd episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. Oh, my goodness. On May 3rd, Dial Up the Dream, Make Your Daughter's Journey to Adulthood will be launched into the world, and that's in about a week. And on May 5th, the Thursday before Mother's Day, I am having the Dial Up the Dream online event. I would love you to be there. It starts at 10 Pacific Time, 11 Mountain Time, noon Central Standard Time, and 1 Eastern Time. And here are some of the reasons I wrote Dial Up the Dream, and I'm having this event on May 5th. So many of you listening have read my award-winning and best-selling book, Dial Down the Drama. Dial Down the Drama is really helpful for the middle school and early high school years. I realized after talking to hundreds of moms that there needed to be a sequel to Dial Down the Drama. Reason being is that junior and senior year, it's like the alarm goes off and you have a future focus and all your energy is about helping your teens have a successful future. These years are hard and super competitive between moms. I think it's really hard for moms of 17 to 25-year-olds to be really honest with the other moms around you. And therefore, when it feels like the wheels are coming off in your own home, you feel really alone. Mothering your 17 to 25-year-old son or daughter can be really confusing, especially in those years. You literally don't know what to expect 
for you or your emerging son or daughter. You are really unclear what your role is at this time. So at the online event on May 5th, I will address some of these issues and also interview some of the moms from my book. I will also have a time for Q&A where you can literally ask me anything. And there's more. So on May 5th, I'll have some fun giveaways that I will give every 20 minutes. And here's the very cool thing. This event is literally free when you pre-order Dial Up the Dream, wherever books are sold. Or you can pre-order my Audible book, too. I would love to see you on May 5th. Here's what you can do. Go to dialupthedream.com and just opt in, and I will get you registered. It's going to be so fun to see you face-to-face. So give yourself the gift right before Mother's Day. I promise you... You'll leave encouraged and like you're not the only one. And now I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about chapter 11, Dial Up Your Dream, from my book, Dial Up Your Dream. The previous chapter, chapter 10, was called Reconnect to Yourself. And you need to reconnect with yourself if you are going to dial up your dream. Now we can take a cue from our daughters. We expected our daughters to dial up their dreams. We expected them to do the hard work, persevere, face insecurities, take a risk, be courageous, push through being uncomfortable, move to another city if they go to college or do a gap year, leave high school friends, start over, and they don't have any certainties. We just expect that of them. And now it's our turn to dial up the dream, but it's never easy. It can feel depressing to a mom thinking, I need to get a job or I need to find new friends or find new interests or having to start over again in some way. I think moms, we have a choice when our teens leave home. We can get stuck at having our kids be our entire life and stay hyper-focused with everything they're doing and try to get our own personal needs met through our kids' experiences. And I can tell you this approach does not go well because we are often prying into their personal business and they feel our clinginess and they feel that we're trying to control them and they hate our unsolicited advice. Or we can dial up our own dreams and take a risk and ask hard questions, pursue our creativity and interests, put ourselves out there in new ways and see that we all have a lot to give to the world. And we get to ask ourselves questions that we have not asked ourselves for the longest of times, like, what do I truly want? So I'm going to say that again, in case you glazed over. Ask yourself, what do I truly want? So in this chapter, we first look at how our dial gets stuck and how we can dial up our dream one click at a time. So in today's episode, I interviewed Dr. Robin Graham, author of You, Me, and Anxiety, Take Action Over Anxiety to Enjoy Being You. Do you ever wonder what it might be like to not feel anxious all the time? And this applies to both moms and teens. So the good news is you no longer have to feel alone and isolated. You, me, and anxiety 
helps you identify anxiety, recognize its symptoms, and take an intentional action to manage and overcome it so that it no longer has a negative grip on your life. This book does not promise that overcoming and managing anxiety will be easy, but it will show you that you have the ability and tools to navigate through it. Dr. Robin Graham is an anxious introvert on a mission to help teen girls go from feeling anxious to relentless by sharing her lifelong journey with anxiety and the tools and resources that helped her not only survive but thrive. As a clinical pharmacist, professional photographer, brand strategist, and business coach, Robin has witnessed both the clinical and social complications of anxiety and how it holds people, especially girls and women, back from achieving their goals and dreams. Robin is a mom to Joshua, Samuel, and Grace, wife to Dr. John Graham, dog mom to Stella and Kona, and a daughter, sister, aunt, and friend. And this is her first book. So welcome, Robin. Thank you, Colleen. I am happy to be here. Yes. So the first thing I ask all my guests is, do you have kids and what are their ages? I do. I have two sons and a daughter. My boys are 22 and 20, and my daughter is 14, almost 15. Oh, wow. That's great. So you have a new book that's just come out and it's been out for a month um, and it's called You, Me and Anxiety, Take Action Over Anxiety to Enjoy Being You. So the first question I always like to ask is why did you write the book? Well, I have struggled with anxiety my entire life and my oldest son struggled significantly with anxiety and as I was raising my children, my boys in particular, and, and now my daughter, I have just witnessed so many parents and teens struggling with navigating anxiety. And a lot of the parents that I've noticed didn't know what was going on with their kids, but because I had experienced this from myself as well as with my son, I was able to recognize what was happening and then be able to help them get into therapy or connect them with a therapist or give them a little bit of advice of what worked for us and what didn't work for us. And through that, I realized that there's so much more about my story that could help young girls navigate life in a different way than I was able to navigate life. I was, and, I, and, and to be perfectly honest, I felt a calling on my heart. I started this as a photography project where I wanted to photograph teen girls to be able to give therapists, psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, like a coffee table book, where if their patients couldn't explain how they were feeling, maybe they could point to a picture and say, that's how I feel every day. Maybe it was regarding food, maybe it was regarding sleep, waking up in the morning, looking in the mirror, whatever that may be. And that project was, I thought, brilliant, but it was very hard to get people to want to be photographed because it's such a vulnerable topic and a vulnerable experience to be in front of the camera. And I did work with three incredible incredible girls who had struggled immensely. And the pictures were amazing, definitely told a story, but I didn't have the volume to make that project worthwhile. So I, at that point, I transitioned to telling my story and 
giving a tool, hopefully, that will help young girls, young women navigate life better than I did. It's kind of that handbook that I wish someone had given me when I was younger. And I'm just hoping that through this, I'll be able to empower young girls to follow their hearts and not be so intimidated by not being able to do everything that their peers are doing, but then navigate their anxiety so that they can find joy and purpose and be able to do some of the things their peers are doing that they've been held back from. Yeah. So tell the listeners a little bit about the structure of the book, because you have the chapters for the teens, and then you have a parent section. Like, how do you best see teens and parents using the book? The book originated as the idea was for teen girls. But as I started writing, I was like, there has to be a parent component as well, because I've seen too many times parents say, just get over it. And that doesn't work. As you know, from a therapist's perspective, like you can't tell someone with anxiety to just get over it. And a lot of times kids have physical symptoms with anxiety that, you know, they, the parents take them to the doctor. There's no answer. There's, there's really nothing wrong with them from a physical perspective, but anxiety is triggering some sort of reaction within the body. And so I wanted parents to be able to help their team to understand what's happening, maybe help them identify what's happening or maybe just, you know, be able to understand what's happening and then get the help that's needed. Because a lot of times, as you know, we can't do this alone. You can't navigate anxiety alone. You aren't, aren't meant to. And so to have them, the parents and teens be able to both have this content to navigate anxiety together. So the teen book is in both books. So you have the teen book and then at the end of each chapter, there's a parent section. And the parent section also goes through, you know, my experience with my own children, but also my experience with my parents. And so, you know, not to do what my parents did or not to do some of the mistakes I made, but what did work for me with my children. And then there's a journal as well, because as, throughout the book, I have exercises that will help take action so that you can identify those triggers, you know, identify those physical symptoms that are happening, ways to identify what is something that you are afraid of that, and then transferring those thoughts to, okay, maybe that won't happen, but maybe this will identifying with relationships who you can trust because trust, you know, is often something that's very challenging to do whenever you have anxiety. So each chapter is broken out basically with a word. And then there's the definition of the word and a quote or scripture verse around that word. And then the chapter and how that word may influence anxiety or how anxiety may influence that word. And then yeah, no, I love the structure. And I think it's great because in my experience, I'm a family therapist. And so I see how often moms misunderstand a teen's actions and, and we'll dive into the anger part, but, mm -hmm. but you can really misunderstand their motives and you don't, when you don't understand the anxiety piece of it. So yes. since you wrote a lot about your story and anxiety, can you share your story about what it was like for you to have anxiety? Yeah. So of course it was a little bit different in every phase of my life. I grew up in a small town with not a lot of resources and I had 
a father who had anxiety, but we didn't know what anxiety was at that point in time. And he was, you know, a guy's guy. He wasn't going to go to a doctor and say, I'm feeling this way. So there was a lot of emotional instability in my family. I had a teen mom. And so we kind of grew up together. They were incredible humans. They gave us a ton of love. We always had everything we needed, but there was a lot of dysfunction. So I genetically was predisposed to anxiety because my grandmother had it, my father had it. I believe my mother's mother was bipolar. When we look back at different behaviors and experiences that we had with her over the years, and as a result of abuse and trauma my mother had experienced, there was a lot of instability and lack of trust, lack of confidence there as well. So, you know, you can imagine as a little girl, there's, you know, I'm already predisposed. I was very intuitive, a very curious child, also very shy and anxious and nobody knew what to do with that. And I had stomach pains a lot and I would cry and beg not to go to school. And my mother would not know what to do with me. And because, you know, every child should just want to go to school and go to school. But I would sit on the front porch in tears and carpool would come to pick me up. And I, I physically could not go. I could not get myself off of that step to go to the car. And my mother would just put me in my room for the day and say, well, I don't know what to do with you. There's nothing wrong with you. And the doctors were saying there was nothing wrong with me. So it started at a very early age and navigating peer relationships was very challenging for me because I was always concerned with what other people thought. I was always afraid to do what other people were doing. Sports was an outlet for me. But again, if I felt pressure or I felt like I had made a mistake, I would shut down. There just was not a lot of confidence ever. And then going into from high school into college, I had a very abusive relationship with a boy and that lasted for, I guess, three years. And that really demolished any confidence that I had left. But because of that, I was so dependent on him thinking that because of how he had manipulated me, because I didn't have confidence in myself because of the anxiety that I couldn't do anything that my peers were doing. I lost a lot of opportunities and I, I hid a lot and I hid behind a lot of facades and, you know, the outside world never knew what was going on with me. And that lasted into my adult years. And I also struggled with an eating disorder as a result. So all of those things were things that obviously could have been prevented had help been sought, but I hid everything. And I I really couldn't talk to my parents about it because There was just this gap in, I guess, understanding and knowledge as to what was happening. How were you able to turn that around? Honestly, Colleen, I think by the grace of God, (laughs) you know, when I was, when I was struggling with my eating disorder, I was eating a thousand calories a day and I was running six miles. So I was offsetting any caloric intake that I had and I had it down to a science. I could eat so many M&Ms because that was my favorite thing in the world. So I would do enough exercise and eat just enough other food so that I could still have my M&Ms. You look back and I think, oh my goodness, I, you know, I was like crazy, but I don't know. I, to be perfectly honest, I don't know how I overcame all of that. I think I was so determined and I wanted success so badly that I just kept pushing through. And, you know, I, I read self-help books and I guess that helped when I graduated college and um, 
I was extremely thin and not very healthy, but still pushing, pushing, pushing. And after, you know, finally waking up to the fact that this, this boy that was cheating on me all these years and abusing me in such a way and manipulating me, I did seek help through a therapist and that gave me some strength. But we didn't get to the root of the problem at that point in time. And it wasn't until my kids, till my son. uh, So I was in my late 30s when I finally actually got the help I needed. So as we were navigating his anxiety, I started navigating my own anxiety and getting the help that I needed. And that's when I discovered cognitive behavioral therapy. And that is what turned my life around. Great. Because I was going to ask you what tool was helpful. So the CBT was helpful for you. Yes. We had a therapist that worked with both my son and I, and and the way she explained that was, you know, to catch those thoughts, challenge those thoughts and change those thoughts. And for me, anxiety presented oftentimes as anger or self-injurious behavior. And that's how I dealt with it. Not knowing what in the world was happening. I just thought it was crazy. I didn't know why I was angry. I didn't know why I was so reactionary and and so sensitive and and taking anything that anybody said and, and taking it in, you know, you talk about negativity bias and that my brain was like all about all of the negative input and not transitioning anything to positive and not holding on to anything positive. You know, someone could tell me I was pretty and I'd be like, yeah, well, I have this, 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 this wrong with me. So the cognitive behavioral therapy was what really, really helped me. And that is what I talk so much about in the book. Yeah. So what's it like being a mom now of a child who has really severe anxiety? Oh my gosh. So, you know, the first time we realized was my son needed to do a presentation in school and the parents were there to watch the presentation and he couldn't do it. And he started to cry and he was an athlete. He was a big, strong, physical kid. And seeing that opened so many wounds of my own because it was me. I literally was observing me. It was heartbreaking And I'm a fixer. I wanted to fix it and I couldn't fix it. As we started to help him navigate, I started to learn more about, I can't fix it. I have to depend on God first. And then I can, you know, pray a lot, which is what I did. And I would just share with him, like, you know what, this is how mommy lived. And I don't want you to live this way. And of course, you know, as a, as a young boy, he didn't want to go to therapy. And then when we got to high school and he had basically a breakdown, I didn't know what to do other than love him. And I would just sit and hold him and and cry with him and let him get all of those emotions out and pray with him. And, that's really how we navigated it. Now, my daughter's a different story because, you know, my son was very, he wasn't social. He was just a totally different kid and his anxiety presented in such different ways. And and he was more open to me helping him. You know, he would go to therapy and everything. My daughter isn't as open to me helping her, but she is open to therapy. So it's a totally different experience, but she also isn't as anxious as he was. And the anxiety is totally different than his was. His was generalized and social, whereas she's got a little bit of generalized with maybe some test anxiety, whereas social anxiety, she's pretty much a social butterfly. And she is all about all of that, which is totally different than my son. So it's, it's a totally different experience navigating. But the one thing is that, you know, I, I have always been open and communicated with them as to, I don't want you to make the same mistakes I made 
because of anxiety. And so being able to share my story with them has helped open doors for them to, to navigate anxiety in a, and do things that I wasn't able to do. So what do you think really helped your son with his anxiety? We saw a sports psychologist for him and he used cognitive behavioral therapy with him. And so the first therapist we saw when he was younger used cognitive behavioral therapy. And then so did this therapist and it took a prescription for an anti-anxiety medication, Zoloft, to be able to break through the issues first. And without having had that medication, I don't think we would have been able to break through. It opened the door for his mind to be able to hear what the therapist was saying and then take action on what the therapist was recommending. That was a big help. And I know so many people are anti-medication, don't want to do medication, but but there is no shame in that. And I want to emphasize that because sometimes it's needed and it's only needed for a short period of time. He wasn't even on it for three months, but what it did was it, it calmed his brain enough, changed the chemicals in his brain so that he was able to be receptive to what the therapist was saying. Without that, I'm not sure that we would have had the breakthrough that we had. And now he's learned these techniques. And so he, he knows, and if he can't navigate it himself, he'll call me and we'll navigate it together. We'll walk through a scenario or a situation and just being able to identify that this is happening and recognizing the triggers. He has strategies now that he can navigate or use to navigate when the anxiety does rise. Yeah. I think one misperception of anxiety is that it's just, just think differently it's a whole body experience. There is a definitely a thinking component. There's a feeling component and then there's the body component. So I'm really glad that you talked about the medication because sometimes it really is just that there are really low levels of serotonin and really mm -hmm. high levels of cortisol. Mm -hmm. And, and you're right that sometimes just helping the body get stabilized, then your son really could benefit from something like CBT. Uh -huh. So yeah, there is no shame in medication for sure. The reason I asked that question is that I think there's like a lot of different paths to healing with anxiety. Yes. You talked a little bit about this in your book. So what's the difference between anxiety and worry? I love this question. And I'm sure there are probably people who have a different opinion, but for me, I feel like, and my mother is a worrier, you know, she'll call me and say, I haven't heard from you. Is everything Okay. Well, if you haven't heard from me, most likely everything's okay, you know, but some people, I think it's a choice to always let those negative thoughts, the worries come into their life. Whereas with anxiety, there is no choice. This is something that is going on chemically, physically inside your mind. And the biggest difference for me is that when you're worried about something or nervous about something, like let's use a presentation as an example. And, you know, you're, you're worried, you're nervous, you may have butterflies, your palms may be sweaty. You maybe didn't sleep so well the night before. You may have a little bit of tension in your shoulders, but you do that thing. You make the presentation you get up in front of that audience and when you're finished, all of those symptoms are gone and you feel this huge sense of relief. Whereas with anxiety, that doesn't stop. All of those things you felt before still exist, maybe not to the extent, but your mind is still saying, what if, what if they didn't like it? 
What if that person that was looking down wasn't interested in what I was saying? What if I said something wrong? What if I made a mistake? What if I looked stupid? What if I offended somebody? And those negative what ifs just keep coming at you for hours to days to weeks after you have done this thing, whether it's a presentation or just a, a simple interaction, you know, with someone else. And so that to me, that is the difference between worry, nervousness versus anxiety. Yeah, that's a great distinction. And again, I think that's what people don't think about. They think that you can really control that anxiety. Like that's such a great illustration to, to show the difference. I love that. Thank you. So what, Thank you. What are some of the physical symptoms of anxiety? Huh. So for me, it's always been in my tummy. Like when I have something big coming up, I, I'll have a stomach ache and I'll think to myself, oh my gosh, what is going on? Do I have an ulcer? Do I need to go to the doctor or whatever? And then I'll stop, take a breath. And I'm like, okay, this is the pain I get when I'm anxious about something. So what is it that I'm anxious about? For some people, it's headaches. They'll, they'll have headaches as are a trigger. For some people, it's severe tension in the neck, the shoulders. Sometimes it's a lack of sleep. A lot of people will not be able to sleep because of anxiety and sleep is so critically important for our overall health. That's a big deal if you're not getting enough sleep because with anxiety, you also have signs and symptoms that relate to irritability, anger. And I think a lot of times, as you mentioned before, we have a misunderstanding of behaviors of teens. And a lot of times that irritability or anger may be an underlying diagnosis of anxiety that has not been identified yet. And so I think that is one of the key things to recognize. If you see a change of behavior, lack of focus, inability to take tests, inability to perform at the same level that they were performing before, stomach aches, headaches, neck pain, shoulder pain, things like that as a result of those tight muscles, those are things to look for that maybe there's something more going on than just a little bit of stress. Yeah, no, that's great. So explain what you mean when you say that our thoughts create our results. I love this. So we know that our thoughts will trigger our emotions, right? So it's it's kind of this whole cycle. So you have your thoughts, your beliefs, those are going to determine what our emotions are, what our feelings are, and our emotions and feelings are going to determine what actions we take. So if we have negative thoughts and that's going to make us feel down or sluggish or fearful, we're not going to take action to move us forward in our life, in our business, in our schoolwork, or whatever the situation is. So it's really important to know, like, what are those thoughts you're experiencing? And if it's a lot of negative thoughts, it's time to take action so that you can stop the cycle moving into negative emotions, feeling down, feeling frustrated, feeling overwhelmed, feeling sad, feeling sluggish so that you can take action. And whether that action is physical action, whether it is just journaling, whether it is just putting yourself out there to better relationships, we won't do that if we're sitting in this negative cycle of, of thoughts and emotions. Yes. What do you think is the connection between anger and anxiety? Oh gosh, I think what happens is kind of alluded to this in the book is that you're anxious about something, but you don't know what these feelings are. 
And when the brain has this hiccup and it's, I use the Ferris wheel as the example in the book, because it's like all these negative thoughts are getting on the Ferris wheel. You know, you think of a Ferris wheel and people are, it slows down to let people off and let people on. But with anxiety, that Ferris wheel just keeps going and going and going in our brain. And it starts going faster and faster. So those negative thoughts cannot get off and allow positive thoughts on. And with anxiety, if you are in a situation that, and and I'm going to use this example, and it's an example that I have in the book. So my father was someone who definitely had anxiety and he wanted to be to church on time on Sunday morning. My mother was always late, always late. And my father's reaction to being late was he got angry because for him, that anxiety triggered all of those what if thoughts. Well, what if we're late? What if we can't get a seat? What if people are looking at us? What if people think bad of us because we're late? You know, all those what if thoughts. And so then that led to tension, which then led to anger because nothing was going as it's supposed to go. And when you have anxiety, your brain isn't going to stop and be and think, oh, okay, it's okay if we're late because who cares if anybody says anything, at least we're going. And there will always be a seat because it's a big place. And if not, we could sit in the balcony or if not, they could bring out folding chairs or if not, we can sit in the narthex and still hear the sermon. You know, your brain doesn't go to those places. It goes to all of those negative what ifs. And then the body doesn't know what to do with all of that. And so then that triggers anger. And that's how at least I've experienced it in my life. And it's that it's almost like, you know, something happens. Like you think of don't cry over spilt milk. Well, for somebody who has anxiety, they look at that spilt milk as, oh my gosh, I don't have time for this. And now look, now there's wasted milk. And now I have to go to the grocery store. And now I have to clean this up. And now the floor is sticky and don't let the dog step in that. And it's all of these things versus it's spilt milk. We can get more milk, no big deal. And so that those reactions the, the body has to react to that. You have to get those, those feelings, those emotions out. And a lot of times it comes out as anger or irritability. Yeah, no, that's really great. And I think also is when you're emotionally flooded, you go into stress response. Yes. And one of the things is fight, flight, or freeze. So, yes. so you go into fight mm-hmm. so when you get emotionally flooded. I meet with lots of parents and senior and high school kids and college and all of that. And I definitely see that component where, you know, the daughter is like so angry and just yells because their parents asked about, well, did you hear from this college or, and they just lose it. So, mm-hmm. cause there's so much anxiety. And I mean, this girl actually has anxiety besides worrying as you made that distinction, but yeah. Oh my goodness. And I think that is specifically where parents just don't understand. They just think, God, you're so rude. But mm-hmm. if you could see it as anxiety, it helps you have a little more compassion. And mm-hmm. also, I think a strategy for parents at that point is to let that person, the teen, kind of calm down a little bit before you really try to talk to them. Mm-hmm. If they're in that anger place, you're going to not get anywhere with them. You're right. And it, you know, that's something I've had to learn because as an anxious person, I don't have a lot of patience and I want answers, but I've had to learn. I have to be respectful of their needs as well. I can't impose my emotional instability on them. I need to stand back and let them navigate the situation the way they need to navigate it. And it's interesting because, you know, with girls, a lot of times 
there are, and, and my boys have had similar experiences, I guess, but to a lesser extent, but with girls, you've got a lot more social pressures. And, mm-hmm. you know, when a girl does something or says something and makes your daughter cry, like for me, I'm like, well, why did that happen? Well, were you nice? Did you do anything? Did you say anything? And well, why would they do that? And did they do that to anyone else? And I've got a million questions, right? Because I want to help her navigate that. But what I've learned is it's not my place to ask those questions. She just needs me to be there and listen Mm -hmm. and help her navigate. And a lot of times it just takes me saying, you know what, honey, I'm really sorry this happened. If you want to talk about it, I'm here. I'm not going to ask a lot of questions because I know that drives you crazy, but I had to learn not to ask all those questions and to Mm -hmm. let her come to me and tell me the details as she needed to get that off her chest or as she needed to share versus me trying to control the situation and navigate the situation because that's not my job. She's old enough and she has to navigate it herself and deal with the emotions of herself before she can come to me and have me it quote unquote intervene. Right. Yeah. I love to tell moms is there's multiple conversations. We always feel like there's only one conversation. We have to say everything right now and just, you know, give our wisdom and fix it and calm them down all in the same (laughs) conversation. When really conversation one is, I call it the calm down conversation is just being there, naming the feelings, letting them not feel like they're crazy. Just being present with them is conversation one. I call that a spiritual discipline for moms because we want to give all our advice. You do. And and it's so hard to not do that. Yeah. It's like biting your tongue. (laughs) The listeners can't see it, like biting my tongue. And especially those of us who have anxiety, we think that time is so limited and we think we've got to get it all out now or we're going to lose our opportunity. But the reality is they can only take in so much. And if they're upset, they're only going to hear so much and understand so much and be able to act on so much. It's so much better if we can do, like you said, have multiple conversations versus trying to push it all into one big conversation. Yes. So what do you think is the relationship between anxiety and shame? Oh my gosh. I think this is so many layers. You know, it's like peeling back an onion because when a person has anxiety, number one, you have shame over the fact that you're not quote unquote normal. You have shame around your behaviors and actions in response to your anxiety. You have shame because you're embarrassed because you can't do what your peers are doing. You have shame because you are so sensitive and you always feel like you're not good enough. So, you know, those are just a few things, but there's just layers and layers, I think, to shame. And it starts with just being different. Instead, I think it's so important to look at ourselves as, you know, anxiety isn't a death sentence. And it's not a sentence to say that you can never do anything that everybody else is doing and you can never be quote unquote normal. That isn't what anxiety is. We're all unique. And if we can just get curious about ourselves and the world around us, we can take away that layer of judgment that leads to shame. Yes, absolutely. And I think, and I know you would agree with this, is there are so many cultural aspects that just amp up the anxiety. And I think the last statistic that I heard is that one third of teenage girls will experience significant anxiety. So it's like so high. So high. So high. And so what do you think? I mean, you wrote about it in the book, but what do you think are some of the cultural influences that impact anxiety in our teens? 
I'm going to start with this. There's, there's a chapter in the book about values. And I think that like, I think my life would have been completely different had I understood when I was younger, what values are and what it meant to adhere to my values, the things that are important to me that I'm not willing to waver on right now, our girls have so much pressure to not only perform well, because the standards are so much higher, but now they have everybody sharing everything on social media and physically it's very hard to not compare yourself and not put that additional pressure on you from a physical perspective to look just right, to do the makeup just right to, you know, when I was 14, I definitely did not wear makeup. And, you know, my daughter's like, oh, can I buy this? And I'm like, well, what is that? I don't even know how to use it now, you know, but they, they see and learn so much earlier and faster than what we did in our generation, because we were not exposed to all of this. We didn't have all of this at our fingertips and it's leading to so much pressure because of comparison, imposter syndrome at such an early age, thinking that they're not good enough or that they can't do something because other people are already doing it. And then there's the whole relationship aspect and clothing. There's so many pressures, like people are so exposed and, you know, I'll say something and, you know, my daughter's like, yeah, that's just how it is now. And I'm like, there's just acceptance to things that morally, ethically are not right. And nobody's speaking out against it because of cancel culture and, you know, that fear. And so that leads to so much additional pressure, especially if, you know, your, your parents aren't aligned with, you know, politically or religiously with other people's parents. And, you know, it's just this whole, like, they're in this middle place between what's right and what's wrong. And it's really hard to decipher because they have so many external influences. Right. Yeah. So when I was growing up, I think, you know, there might've been 25 pictures taken of me for the entire year. Yeah. And, and we had cameras, you know, real cameras. And now it's just, I don't know, 25 pictures in a day of selfies. Oh, at least and my, uh, yeah. my daughter will say to me, um, just, just hold the button down, mom just hold the button down so that we get a whole bunch. And then I'll, and then, you know, they're going through and they're looking at them as, Oh, I don't like that one. I don't like that one. And I just had an experience and this does not involve a teen, but I think it's a really good example. My niece is 31 and her friend joined us at my house in Florida for the weekend. And this poor girl, you know, every picture was, Oh, my thigh looks so big or, Oh my gosh, I don't like that picture. And I'm thinking, Oh my word, the entire concept of the picture was about putting it online and being so afraid of what other people are going to think about it versus accepting our bodies as they are. If your body is working and I have had an eating disorder, I have had body image issues my entire life. So I say this from a true place of heart that if you can look at your body and see that, that it's functioning. And if you're putting healthy food in your body and you're taking care of your body, your body is a gem to behold. It's not something to constantly be afraid of putting out there for other people to see. And then there's the whole aspect of not everything needs to be seen. <laughs> the bathing right. suits these days are something to be. <laughs> right. No. Yes. So true. Yeah. And just what I've heard the researchers say around that is all these pictures make these girls so self-conscious. Yes. It's and terrible. so they're looking at themselves, just like you said, and then they're critiquing themselves. So it just increases anxiety. It's an anxiety mm -hmm. amplifier. 
because you put the picture out and then what if people don't like it? Yeah. Or like your numbers are down or your numbers are up. Like you said, it doesn't stop. You don't feel relief when you post a picture. That's just the beginning of like this escalation of anxiety. Yeah. And if you're already predisposed to anxiety or already have anxiety, the level of it just escalates so high because those what ifs keep coming. Well, what if they don't like it? What if they say something about it? What if they share it? Who cares? <laughs> but you can't say who cares. But anxious mind is not going to respond to that. It's like, what do you feel about it in your heart? And I think that's the hardest part is that it's really hard for girls to identify what they feel and what they think yes, because yes. of all of these parameters. And so, you know, the chapter on values in the book is like, if girls could just align themselves with who they are inside and stick to that, no matter what's happening around them, no matter what people are posting online, mm-hmm. I think they can find joy and they can discover their purpose long-term versus yes. living in this state, this constant state of what if, and what about other people, but put it back into their own self. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned cancel culture and it's just, there's something so big and wrong about that because you, you talk about things like forgiveness and grace in your book mm-hmm. and that's what we need. I mean, without forgiveness and grace, that that's an amplifier. You know, mm-hmm. if you think I'm going to yeah. be canceled instead of given grace. Mm-hmm. So you want to talk a little bit about what you mean by grace? Yeah. So I, when I talk about grace, one, it's, you know, the grace from Jesus Christ, obviously, but then that grace to be able to give ourselves some mercy that, you know, it's a gift. Like we're not designed to be perfect and we aren't here on earth to be perfect. We're here on earth to, you know, live a God-pleasing life, but to also be kind and loving to other people. And if we are judging ourselves constantly and critiquing ourselves constantly, we aren't going to love ourselves. We're not going to care for ourselves. And then we're not going to be able to care for other people either. And it's just giving yourself that grace, giving yourself the love, the courtesy to be respectful to yourself and to accept yourself as you are. You know, if you are overweight and you are eating unhealthy and you are not exercising, then should you take action to change your body? Maybe. But most of us have or are taking initiatives to keep ourselves healthy, right? And so if we're taking that initiative to keep ourselves healthy, and even if you are a little bit overweight, that doesn't make you a bad person. That doesn't make you ugly. That is the body that God gave you. So give yourself the grace to accept it, to love it, to nurture it, to care for it versus criticizing it and downgrading it. Because if you have five fingers on each hand, if you have two legs and two arms and a beautiful head on your shoulders that is thinking and enabling you to do, you are so much better off than so many people out there. And so instead of looking at it as, at yourself as you know something that's meant to be judged and critique, look at yourself as a vessel to serve and to love and to be kind to others. And I think that's what I mean by that grace, that grace of self-acceptance. Mm, That's beautiful. What are the five C's of journaling? Mm, I love this. So catch, challenge, change, control, and confidence. So we want to catch those negative thoughts, catch those what ifs as they're coming in and challenge them. You know, if you're sitting there thinking, what if they don't like me? Change that thought to what if they do like me? 
What if I make them smile? What if I make them feel good? What if I have an impact on their life from a positive perspective? Change those thoughts, change those what ifs, challenge them and then change them. And the more you can catch those thoughts, change the, or challenge those thoughts and then change them, the more confident you're gonna be because you're, you're gonna be able to realize that as those thoughts are coming in, you're not letting them control you anymore. You're controlling them. And that makes a huge difference in how you live out your life. You know, if you're sitting there thinking, what if they don't like me? You're not going to do the things you want to do. You're not going to interact with the people that you want to interact with. And that makes a big difference in your overall life. So if you can catch those what ifs and challenge them, you know, what if they don't like me? Well, is that realistic? Like, would the person next to you make the assumption that that other person isn't going to like you? No, they wouldn't. So if it's not rational, if it's not realistic, change it to the positive alternative. And the more you do that, the more control you'll have and the more confidence you'll have. I love that. So do you have any last advice for the moms? Moms, you have to give yourselves grace too, because we are not perfect. And parenting is one of the hardest jobs. I always say marriage and parenting are the two hardest jobs in the entire world. And nobody prepares them for us. I don't care how many parenting books you read. It's really hard in the moment. So I would say definitely give yourself that grace to not judge yourself and not shame yourself for any mistakes you've made in the past or that you will make in the future because none of us are parenting perfectly and we need to be open to making mistakes and then forgive ourselves for the mistakes we've made and keep that connection the conversation the dialogue open to communicate with your teens openly readily but not forcefully Mm -hmm. So how can people order your book and you, me and anxiety and how can they contact you? So if they go to www.youmeandanxiety.com, you can order the book there. You can order it on Amazon and anybody can connect with me through my website. My business website is therobingraham.com. But if you go to youmeandanxiety.com, you will see everything about me and you can connect with me on my social media platforms through that as well. I'm the Robin Graham everywhere. Well, I think this is a, a beautiful gift for the world. So thank you for writing it because I know about writing books and it is an act of love. Yes. So thank you for writing the book. And it was just lovely to have that conversation with you. And you have a great day. And everyone listening, I hope you have a great day too. This concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and give Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my best-selling and award-winning book, Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, A Guide for Mothers Everywhere. You can find that and order it online at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And you can always find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com, two L's and two E's.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.